Well, this morning, if you are a guest, we're going to do things a little bit different during the sermon time, maybe than we normally do. And so I hope that what we talk about today will be an encouragement to you as a guest and to help you think about um, worship in your own life. But we're going to think about worship in the context of, of our church family as we gather for worship and uh, try to prepare as a church for inevitable change as we think of a, a new worship leader coming to lead us. Uh, we, uh, we've got a personnel committee who's been looking and, and talking, and so continue to pray for them, pray that the Lord will guide them, and, and eventually the Lord's going to bring us someone here to, to, to help us in leading worship. We're so grateful for Wayne filling in and, and the team and, and all who are serving. Thank you all. <laughs> grateful for you. Doing a, doing a fantastic job. Well, anytime you talk about music in the church, that's probably something akin to trying to deactivate a landmine. There's a good chance you may find yourself in a whole heap of trouble, right? So this morning, my hope, well, for one, it's to stay out of trouble, but um, if I'm going to get in trouble, I want to get in trouble for being faithful to the word. That's the kind of trouble I don't really want, but if we get that, that's okay. I can live with that. But I don't want to get in the wrong kind of trouble where I am inserting my own views and opinions. I want to be faithful to, to what the scriptures say and clear uh, outworkings of that in terms of applying what the scriptures say in, in our church. My hope in preaching this morning's sermon is that we might be united as a church family. Now to talk a little bit about uh, the issue of music in our church and, and history My understanding is that for years and years and years, our church had a fairly traditional approach to worship. And some years ago, there was a decision to to have a contemporary service, to to add a contemporary service in in addition to the traditional service. And so for a period of time, First Baptist Church Uvalde had two services. And then after a while, the decision was made uh, that the services would be consolidated and we would have something called a blended church worship service, which means that we try to, try to combine the two. And, and so when the search committee that brought me here brought this up, they said, what is your perspective on a blended worship service? And I said, I, I feel good about that. I, I think in a, in a congregation like our own, that, that makes a lot of sense in a, in a congregation like this. And so uh, I came, and, and since that time, I think our church has, has strived to be uh, or to have a, a somewhat blended service. And I think about a blended service... I imagine something like a bell-shaped curve. And on the one end, you have, you know, high church, very traditional. And on the other end, you have rock band and pretty wild. Well, if we're going to be a blended church, it seems to me that we're going we're to cut both of those extremes off. And we're going to try to land right in the middle. We're going to try to, uh, in worship, honor both uh, traditions, honor both uh, desires, Now, again, the goal for this sermon is that as a church family, we would be united around what the Word of God says. I see no reason for a church to jump into worship wars, especially when we look at what the Word has to say about worship. There's no room for that. And so this morning, we're going to try to allow the Word to speak. And I pray that that the words I say, again, are faithful to, to the book not to my own opinions or desires, which are of little value. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 14 this morning. This was one of the earliest books of the New Testament written, written around 55 AD. 
And at this time, when the church gathered for worship, you couldn't say as a pastor, hey, open up the Bible and turn to the book of Matthew because the Bible was being written during this time period and and it hadn't yet all come together. So what God did is he provided prophets who could stand up in a gathered worship service and speak the word. And what they said was definitive. It was the very words of God. And so so, uh, in this passage, we're gonna see... uh, Paul talking about prophets speaking the word. We're going to see that Paul is addressing some trouble that had developed in this early Christian worship service. He's going to address the issue of tongues. And, and there was uh, challenges related to tongues. Now, tongues were, were foreign languages or, or unknown languages. And, and so Paul's going to sort through this idea. The gift was being abused in the church, and he was trying to, to kind of get things in order when they, when they gathered together for worship. Now, this morning, we're going to spend our time thinking about what the gift of tongues is or is not. We, we don't have time for that. We're going to stay focused on what this passage has to say about principles regarding Christian worship. Uh, let's look together at 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spirit that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. I may switch to pulpit. So skip down to uh, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you, all, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged." that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. From 1 Corinthians 14 and supporting scripture, we'll see several truths about Christian worship. First, Christian worship is ultimately about glorifying God. Christian worship is ultimately about glorifying God. In verse 25, we see a glimpse of this. Paul is talking about an unbeliever who comes into a worship gathering. And he suggests that when, a, when an unbeliever or a person who's not yet a Christian comes into the worship service, if he's able to hear the word of God spoken clearly, it would enable him to see his sin and become a believer. And what does Paul say in verse 25? He says the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And so that's the point of worship, that we might come face to face with God and that we might glorify him, that we might fall on our face, if you will, before him. Now, 1 Peter 4.11 also emphasizes this idea that that God's glory is central in the church. Ephesians 3.10 emphasizes the fact that, that God planned for the church 
to bring himself honor and glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us that all of life is meant for the glory of God. Now sometimes uh, in churches, and it, I, I don't, this is not happening here, so please don't think I'm trying to, this is not happening here, but it can happen, and, and I've seen it happen in churches, where you get a group who will kind of work behind the scenes and they're talking to their people and they're trying to make sure that they're kind of rallying the troops for, for their, their point of view or their desire. Then you've got another group over here and they're kind of talking a little bit. And you've probably seen this before. It, it happens, we're sinful, and sometimes we, we act like this. But that kind of espionage or personal agenda, it's got no place. It has no place. When God's glory is central, that kind of stuff's not going to happen. Because instead of wanting my way, suddenly I want him to be glorified. Do you see there's a huge difference there? There's a huge difference. The one is completely selfish and sinful, and the other is honoring to God. It's to say, I want him to be glorified. So if we're going to say that the purpose of gathering together like we're gathering today is that God might be glorified, let's think through the implications of that in our own congregation. Well, first, God's the audience of our worship. That means that whoever's on the platform, you're not the audience. Instead, together, whoever's on the platform and whoever's sitting out in the congregation, our voices are singing to God. He's the audience. And so so we need to think through that. It's never, here's the audience and somebody's up here performing. No, we're all singing to God. We're all giving glory to God. And so, if God is the audience of our worship, the emphasis ought to always be, when we gather together for for our regular Sunday worship, the emphasis ought to be on congregational singing, not on performance. The volume, and again, this is an application of this concept that we want to sing to God. All of us sing to God. Um, The volume of instrumentation and, and vocals ought to support, not overwhelm the congregation. Why? Because we want to hear everybody's voices singing and bringing glory to God. As a church, if God is the, is the audience, then we ought to avoid attempts to entertain or, or to cater to consumerism. A church might have a banquet. A church might have a concert. A church might have a comedy show. But none of these things ought to happen on a Sunday morning when we gather together. Because when we gather together, well, we are singing and hearing the word for the glory of God. He is the audience. And this also ought to affect uh, the way that I, as a preacher, operate. It ought to uh, affect how people who lead worship operate. We shouldn't seek to highlight ourselves, our own skill, our own ability. We ought to always stand on this platform seeking his glory, not our own. It also ought to affect song selection. We ought to avoid songs that put an emphasis on people. When we're talking about gathering for Christian worship, if God is the audience, let's sing songs that focus on God, that focus on glorifying Him and honoring Him. Also, if we're all singing together to God, then we need to select songs that are singable by the congregation. There may be a great song that's good, but because of range, it might not be best for for, for gathering together for worship because we want songs that... Well, we can all sing, since God is the audience. So, the scripture is clear. Worship is about glorifying God. Second, 
Christian worship is meant to grow and to strengthen believers. It's meant to grow and strengthen believers. Look in verse 2. Paul says if someone's speaking in languages that can't be understood, then people aren't helped. In verse 3, he says the one who prophesies or speaks a word from God does so for edification or to build up or for exhortation, that is to encourage someone along in the Lord, or for consolation, that is for for comfort. The one who prophesies in verse 4 builds up the church. In verse 5, Paul says, so that the church may be built up. Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17, Paul's concerned that if someone speaks in an unknown language, that others aren't being built up. Verse 19, Paul says that his words are meant to instruct others. In verse 26, let all things be done for building up. In verse 31, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. What do you see here? The goal of Christian worship ultimately is the glory of God, but it's also that believers might mature and grow in our faith. It's a little bit like taking vitamins. Let's suppose you take your daily vitamin. Right after you take the vitamin, seconds later you don't go, oh, wow, I feel incredible. Let's go get them. No, you understand. Now, there are advertisements for products like that, but I'm just talking about the regular daily vitamins, okay? So you take that daily vitamin, and it really doesn't change how you feel. But your trust is that as you take that that vitamin on a regular basis, that over time you're going to be more healthy, and hopefully your immune system is going to be stronger, and gathering for Christian worship is like that. It's not that you gather for worship and you walk out and go, Wow! That changed everything. Now, that can happen. God can do, can do great works. But most of the time, the value of gathering for Christian worship is a little bit like a daily vitamin. Over time, it strengthens us in the Lord. It, it changes the way we think. It helps us to grow in him and want to walk with him. And so gathering for worship is of utmost importance. Why? Because it helps us, even we don't realize it, to grow stronger in the Lord. When we, when we do so with a right heart, of course, So let's think through applying this notion that Christian worship is meant to strengthen believers in the faith. What does that look like? Well, first, Christian worship ought to be guided by and saturated with the Word of God. So we ought to select songs that are rich in Christian theology, not songs that could be sung to your sweetheart or to the God of some other religion. So if you could put the song on your love mix that you're going to give to your girlfriend, probably not ideal for Christian worship. Though there are songs out there that are designed for Christian worship that are a lot like that. We want songs that teach, that instruct the deep truths of the word so that we're built up. Next, Christian worship is designed with believers in mind as unbelievers cannot yet worship God. So what does this mean? It means that all who lead in worship ought to be believers. We, we shouldn't bring in unbelievers to lead in worship. We, we want unbelievers to see Christians worshiping and be drawn to, to Christ. It also means that those who are on the platform leading ought to be striving to live lives of integrity. And that means as a pastor, I shouldn't get up here and preach on a Sunday and then on Tuesday be a jerk to someone or, or, or not live the life. And all of us are going to make mistakes, me included. But our hearts ought to strive to be... Uh, living lives that are pleasing to God, that that reveal integrity. 
Incidentally, this ought to affect the clothing that we wear all the time, but certainly the clothing that's worn on the platform. We would want clothing to be modest, to be clearly modest, unquestionably modest. Why? Because we want God to be honored. We want to to strengthen believers in worship, and one of the most powerful ways we teach, like it or not, is by our example. So integrity, Christ-like character, even what we wear, all of these things can, can teach and instruct and do teach and instruct. Next, Christian worship should include elements that have clear biblical support. Now, I'm not going to give you the scriptures for all of these, but out in the foyer, I place kind of a theology and philosophy of worship that you can pick up if you want to look at more uh, of the scriptures related to what I'm preaching about. Um, but in, in worship, we see there's clear support that the word is read when we gather for worship, that, that, that the word is prayed, that people are gathering uh, together for prayer, that, that the word is, is being sung and people are, are singing uh, hymns and spiritual songs together. Uh, that the word is being taught and preached. And in, a, in many ways, you can see the word observed when we gather for worship, when, when we observe the ordinances, when, when we observe the ordinance of baptism or the Lord's Supper. That's a way to see the word fleshed out. And then, of course, opportunities for people to share about the impact of God's word in their own lives. These are things that, that we see happening in the early church. And of course, giving is, is often a, a part of worship as well. So worship is meant to strengthen believers. Third, Christian worship proclaims Jesus and the gospel. Christian worship proclaims Jesus and the gospel. In verse 22, Paul says, unknown languages being spoken are a sign for unbelievers. And Paul's meaning a sign in the negative sense. He says if they enter a worship gathering and they hear unknown languages, they may think that Christians are crazy and reject the gospel. In verses 24 and 25, Paul says that when prophecies are given or a clear word from God is is given, that that's meant to strengthen believers, but also that it gives an unbeliever an opportunity to turn from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. So every sermon that's preached ought to include a clear presentation of the gospel. Every sermon that's preached ought to have a clear presentation of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the best news ever. It's the news that you and me, people who are sinful and who have rebelled against God, can know him and have a relationship with him. And that we can have heaven, that we can have eternal life. The gospel is that God sent his very own son to come and live the life that we could never live. He lived a life of perfection. And he came and he died the death that we deserve. He suffered on the cross for your sin and my sin. He was buried and he was raised to life. And the scriptures tell us that if we will call on him, if we will turn from our sin and call on him, he saves us and gives us life. That's the gospel message. And that ought to be present in every service, every time we gather together as a congregation, the gospel ought to be proclaimed. In fact, we ought to include songs in every worship service that have those solid gospel truths that focus on the the death of Christ and, and, and on salvation in him. Worship services should strive to be sensitive to to the fact that unbelievers may be among them. And that means that those of us who are are believers, we ought to strive to really, and who are members of the church, we ought to strive to be very kind and and warm to to folks who are are guests. Uh, We we ought to strive to to make them feel loved and at home. We, We want them to see the love of Jesus fleshed out in our lives as we gather for worship. So our worship services ought to be sensitive to the fact that unbelievers may, may be with us and almost certainly are. 
We also ought to have a missiological impulse that encourages us to shape our worship services with our mission fill in mind. And what I mean by that is we ought to have such a commitment to reach people with the gospel that we're going to allow our mission field in some ways to shape, uh, to shape our musical style. Still with the recognition that glorifying God is primary, strengthening believers is, is, is very important. But uh, it, it's something like this. Style, it's, it's not essential, but it, it can't be ignored. If our services were heavy metal, there'd be a handful of you who would love it, but most of you would go down the street and you'd go somewhere else. Or if our services were in opera, there'd be a few of you who would be like, this is great, I've been dreaming of this. But there'd be a lot of you who would say, I think I'm going to try something else. The reason is this, we can't make our services so different and foreign to the mission field that we're trying to reach that it can't communicate. So, so there has to be a missiological impulse, a sense of mission that does inform musical style so that we can connect with people. So the gospel ought to be clearly communicated in Christian worship. Fourth, Christian worship should demonstrate concern for the good of others. This is really important, a concern for the good of others. In verse 1, Paul begins this discussion about worship by urging believers to pursue love. In verse 6, he emphasizes his desire to benefit others. In 1 Corinthians 11, another passage that deals with Christian worship in the context of the Lord's Supper, Paul emphasizes the unity that ought to exist when the church comes together in worship and how we ought to have a concern for fellow believers when we gather together. Now, this means that we all ought, all of us should want to demonstrate a concern for other people when we gather for worship. Not just what we want, but, but a concern for everyone. Sometimes music in the life of a church can become an idol. Well, what is an idol? An idol is something that we love more than God. Sometimes music can become an idol. In other words, what we want when it comes to music is what we want. And the loving God part, well, that's... Sure, I'm going to say that because it sounds spiritual, but the truth is, if we could, if we could open up my heart and, and, and see and peer into it, it could be that I love music more than I love God, and I love what I like in music more than I love other people. And I want you to know, that's idolatry. It happens in the church. It's sinful. It's wrong. Music is a servant to the gospel. It's a servant to glorifying God. It's not the end. It's a means to the end of glorifying God. So we need to be careful that we don't allow music to become an idol in our lives. So musical style and song selection ought to be guided by a concern to love each other well. We ought to be guided by the concern to love each other well. That means that in in our context, a context that have folks who really love traditional music and folks that that really prefer contemporary music, that means that we're going to strive to kind of work together. We'll we'll be singing great hymns from the past as well as faithful modern songs. We strive to avoid the extremes, but our desire is that that we don't leave anybody behind, that that we try to hit a middle target that honors honors both desires, that shows love for, for both desires. I have seen churches who were simply unwilling to budge on this issue. And what I've observed is that sometimes folks can demand their way and get it. And I know you've seen this too. But often when folks demand their way and get it, 
in the end, the church loses. In the end, the church is harmed. And I don't want that to happen here. I want us to all say, you know what? I'm going to strive to love each other well in this. I'm going to be committed to the, the overall good, not my, own, not my own preferences, but the good of the church, that the gospel might be furthered, the people might be reached. Next, put aside preferences, uh, your preferences, again, for the good of the mission, that we might reach people. Uh, we must be committed to what the word teaches about worship but flexible in issues of personal preference, putting the good of others ahead of our own preferences. So, Christian worship should show concern for the good of others. Fifth, Christian worship should present God's truths in a manner that is understandable. In a manner that's understandable. Verse 2, when one's speaking in an unknown language, they, they can't be understood, Paul says. Verse 5, Paul says speaking in an unknown language without someone to interpret is secondary to someone speaking a clear word from God. Verse 6, speaking in an unknown language isn't beneficial. Verse 19, Paul said that he would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Verse 23, speaking in unknown languages, he says, may drive away an unbeliever. So, so what's the idea here? Christian worship ought to be understandable. Now, when you were a kid, maybe you had secret codes that you would use with your friends. Maybe they were gestures of some sort that you could kind of communicate and everyone else would be not really know what you're saying, but you would know what you're saying. Or else maybe you had a, a written code. You guys had, could write a note and it would be in a written code and you could pass that around. If someone found it, they wouldn't know what you're saying. You remember doing stuff like that. What Paul is saying here is that in a worship service, we don't want it to be in code. We want people to be able to walk in and understand exactly what's going on. So this means that preaching ought to be committed to the word of God and it ought to be clear and understandable. It means that songs should present Christian truths with clarity, not ambiguity, where, where it's clear what the song is saying. Instrumentation, once again, ought to support, not overwhelm congregational singing so that we can actually hear the words, so that we can hear what, what's being sang. So church worship should be understandable. It should be understandable. Sixth, Christian worship should be orderly. In verse 33, Paul regulates what, a, what should occur in the worship gathering. It says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In verse 40, he says that everything should be done decently and in order. When you go to a, a beautiful building, uh, a structure that's meant to, to, uh, to, ha to have some sort of a, a great outward beauty, and if you see... Graffiti sprawled across that building. What does it do? It immediately takes away from the, the glory or the character of the building. you got this junky-looking graffiti ruining something that's, that's meant to be beautiful. And, and here, a church worship service ought to be orderly so that God's glory is put on display, so that, his, so that awe of God is, is uh, uh, lifted up and displayed, not uh, messy or disorderly worship services. So worship shouldn't be haphazard, but instead we ought to emphasize awe of God. Preachers and worship leaders should strive for an excellence that does not distract from the message or create disorder. Poorly executed ministry as well as extravagant flair, both of these things can hinder the substance of what's being communicated. So as a pastor, worship leaders, if I'm trying to show off or be cute, I can hinder 
what's really trying to be communicated. I can put the focus on the wrong thing, and, and worship leaders can, can do the same thing. We want to have an orderly service that puts the focus on who God is. Seventh, Christian worship requires a right heart before God. It requires a right heart before God. In verse 20, Paul urges the church not to be children or immature in their thinking. He says, be immature in evil, but mature in your thinking. In other words, have a heart that desires to honor God and to do right. In verse 36, Paul confronts the pride of the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 38, Paul urged the believers to search their hearts before taking the Lord's Supper. In other words, if you're going to worship, you've got to have the right heart. You've got to have a right heart before God. And the problem is our hearts are deceptive. They're tricky. That's why we need God to search our hearts. In Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus urges believers to make things right with others before giving gifts and worship. In John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus told the woman at the well that God should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He should be worshipped in spirit. That is that we worship God with a warm heart of affection toward him but also in truth, that we worship according to the word of God. When I was in college, I remember listening to a, to a song, and this was a line from the song. It said, you can lead a horse to water, you can even make him drink, but you can't change his point of view. And there's something here for worship. We can come to worship, but unless you personally, unless I personally have gotten things right with the Lord... Nothing that's done up here is going to make you have a good worship experience. Nothing that's done here is going to make you connect with God. Ultimately, this is something that has to happen in your heart and in my heart. When we come to worship with the right hearts, then what happens here can be, can be greatly glorifying to God and it can lift us up in Him and strengthen us in Him. So how do we get a right heart? Well, we maintain personal times of worship. We spend time reading the word every day we spend time in prayer every day maybe even maybe even singing a song to god of of worship we we do that regularly on our own and then when we gather for worship our hearts are, are better prepared worshipers should pray for god to prepare their hearts so before you come on a sunday morning ask the lord to help you have the right heart i i need to do the same thing and we need to be realistic about something what kind of heart can we bring to worship if we were up till two or three on Saturday night? Teenagers, think about that for a moment. If we want to bring the right heart, we we gotta we gotta be serious about that. Uh, one pastor told the story of a Jewish woman who had visited a nearby synagogue, and this synagogue uh, wouldn't help her. Her marriage was falling apart, but she hadn't paid her dues, and they said we we can't do anything for you. And so she ended up visiting this particular church, and the pastor said that she was so overwhelmed with the atmosphere of worship that she trusted in Jesus as her Savior. A couple of weeks later, she was baptized. She explained that she didn't remember much about the sermon, but she was blown away by the joy, by the peace, and by the love that she saw among God's people as they worshiped together. You see, the people worshiping together was a testimony to that dear woman that God was real, that God was glorious and amazing, and she saw the glory of God on display as these believers gathered together for worship, and she turned her life over to Jesus. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to work. We love him. We seek his glory. We seek to build each other up and to love each other. I don't care about this style or that style. God being lifted up. 
Let me grow in him and love him more. And let people see your glory, God, and let them turn to you and believe. You see, in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, that unbeliever fell on his face when he saw believers worshiping. May it be so here. May they see us loving God and worshiping God, gathered around what the principles of God's word says about worship. So what about you? Are you going to be committed to unity? Are you going to be committed to what the word says about worship? Let's be united together. Let's lay aside personal preferences for the greater good. And let's get serious about glorifying God and seeing people reached for the gospel. Now, I've been talking this morning to believers, primarily people who are members of our church, but I want to speak to those of you who are here today and who are unbelievers, who have never had a time in your life where you have said to Jesus, I am turning from my sin and I believe in you and I want to follow you. If that has never happened in your life, I want you to know that everybody, every person here, everybody worships something. Maybe it's a girlfriend that you worship. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's the truck you drive. Yeah, those things sound silly, but in reality, those things are the things that we worship. We, we set our heart's affection on them, and we want them, and we, we work to get them, and we, we set out after them. But I want you to know, God never intended you, intended for you to chase after and worship a car or a job or a relationship. That longing that you have for something greater. Well, God gave you that that you might worship him, that you might discover him. The greatest love of all is the love that you find in Christ. And so if you're here today and you've never believed, I want you to know there's nothing more glorious than with heartfelt devotion to worship him. There's nothing more glorious. There's nothing more wonderful. There's nothing more fulfilling. So I plead with you, quit chasing after lesser things today. And come to know Jesus. And then indeed, you will know someone who's truly worth worshiping. Join me in prayer.